0: Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Hey folks, welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial for legal insurrection. By the way, anyone interested in a free podcast version of our daily legal commentary and analysis of the Chauvin trial can access the Law of Self-Defense news and Q&A podcast available on most every podcast platform, including Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, Apple, Google. Just get an RSS feed if you like. If you want to get a link to that podcast, and again, it's totally free, you can just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash free podcast, and you'll get all the information you need there. Today's content is sponsored by CCW Safe, a provider of legal service membership, so many people mistakenly call self defense insurance. CCW safe and effect promises to pay their members legal expenses if their member is involved in a use of force event. And those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. A typical aggravated assault charge, what can happen if you simply point your gun at another person in self-defense, don't fire a shot, don't hurt anybody, can risk a 10 or 20 year felony sentence and cost as much as thirty dollars to $50,000 in legal fees to defend. And that's just for the pre- trial expense if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family it can be useful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the legal resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you'd want it fought now i've looked at all these types of services you might imagine and i found that ccw safe is the best fit for me i'm a member my wife emily is a member whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do encourage you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash CCWsafe. And if you do decide to become a member of CCW Safe, you can save 10% off your membership at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash CCWsafe, using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10. Now, I wanted to share with all of you some additional information that's been shared with me on the issue of opioid tolerance. I caution again that I remain uh, thoroughly non-expert on the subject matter, uh, but I do now have some actual research papers that I can share with you, and perhaps we can all develop a better founded understanding of tolerance in the context of this case. Opioid tolerance is of relevance in this case because it ties into the issue of cause of death of George Floyd. Specifically, was it Chauvin's knee that killed Floyd, or was it Floyd's threefold fatal dose of fentanyl in combination with methamphetamine that killed him? Also relevant, of course, is Floyd's existing severe hypertensive and cardiovascular disease, as well as the physiological context of Floyd choosing to forcibly resist efforts by multiple officers to make his lawful arrest. But those factors are outside the scope of this content. Now, during opening arguments, Prosecutor Blackwell suggested to the jury that although Floyd's levels of fentanyl might have been a fatal dose to a typical person, they would not have been fatal to Floyd. Why? Because Floyd was not a typical person. He was an opioid addict, and opioid addicts developed tolerance to their drugs, Thus, according to this line of argument, Floyd would have been substantially less vulnerable to death by fentanyl overdose than would be the non- addict. This line of argument struck me as inconsistent with my own understanding, admittedly, a layman's understanding of how tolerance works in this context. In yesterday's blog post, I wrote, quote, "I don't believe tolerance works to make an addict more resilient against death by overdose, but merely makes it harder to get the desired high." The mechanism of death by overdose and the mechanism of the high are fundamentally different. The brain develops tolerance to the drug and so requires a greater concentration of drug to get the same high, but that has nothing to do with how the drug kills. In the case of fentanyl, death is usually the result of the drug achieving a level sufficient to stop respiration, and I don't believe the body develops any tolerance to that biological mechanism. In other words, if an addict first needs two units of drug to get high, he'll eventually need four, then eight, then ten. But if a fatal dose is 20 units, then whenever the addict hits 20, he dies, and it matters not a whit how much tolerance he's developed in the context of getting high. Indeed, one of the great dangers to addicts is that they grow ever closer to fatal overdose as their increasing tolerance to achieve a high demands doses that approach ever closer to fatal levels. Again, however, that's a layman's understanding of these issues. I look forward to hearing expert testimony during trial close quote. That was the statement I made in yesterday's blog post. Now, the first thing I should say is that there is an error in that statement, and that is that tolerance does develop for both biological mechanisms, uh, the biological mechanism that controls getting the high and the biological mechanism that's involved in depression of respiratory function. But the underlying point remains the same because the degree of tolerance developed is not the same for both. It appears that the degree of tolerance developed for the high grows much more quickly than does that of the respiratory depression. In other words, you develop tolerance, need higher doses for the high. You also develop tolerance for respiratory depression, but that develops much more slowly. So they tend to, in terms of the dose that triggers both, tends to grow into proximity with each other. Um, So let me discuss that in some plain English. This morning I found that a helpful commenter. Uh, thanks, Dan, over at the Law Self Defense blog. Much appreciated. Uh, had kindly provided links to two scientific papers on the subject, and I'd like to share those with you. Now, I caution again, I'm just a small-town lawyer, not a doctor, and two papers do not make a claim authoritative, but they do constitute more scientific support than I'd cited previously, so I thought them worth sharing. And both papers are freely accessible without cost, and I've linked them below in today's content. I also caution that scientific papers are written in the same style and tone as scientific papers are generally written, which can make them rather cumbersome and somewhat opaque uh, to the non expert reader, but that's the way these things go. Now, both papers make the argument supported by their findings, uh, their research findings, that while tolerance may develop both in terms of the high or in a therapeutic setting, the pain relief or analgesic effect desired, And in terms of fatal overdose, in the case of opioids, usually fatal respiratory depression, referred to as opioid-induced respiratory depression, or OIRD, these tolerances do not develop at the same rate. Instead, tolerance of the high grows much faster than does tolerance for overdose. The result is that the window of safe dosing by opioid addicts in which the desired high is achieved without fatal overdose grows smaller and smaller over time, meaning the danger of overdose grows increasingly likely over time. The first paper published in the scientific journal Anesthesiology is titled Differential Opioid Tolerance and Opioid-Induced Hyperalgesia, a Clinical Reality, and it reads in relevant parts, quote, in the early post-operative setting, differential tolerance development to analgesia and respiratory depression is most relevant. Patients receiving chronic opioids for pain control, especially at high doses, should be assumed to have developed less tolerance to opioid-induced respiratory depression than to analgesia, or pain relief. This means that equianalgesic doses of opioids administered perioperatively will induce more respiratory depression in opioid-tolerant than in opioid-naive patients'. In other words, the dose that's required for the pain relief, or in a street setting, the high, among opioid addicts means that they're, we're pushing them up against the dose that would be fatal respiratory depression. The article continues, Note that the dose required to... Re- reach this equi-analgesic effect will likely be much greater in the opioid-tolerant patient. In other words, contrary to what intuitively would seem to be the case, the opioid-tolerant patient is at an increased risk for respiratory depression when his or her postoperative pain is treated adequately with opioids, close quote, or in the street setting um, where they take enough of the drug in order to get the desired high. The second paper published in the scientific journal clinical pharmacology and therapeutics is titled tolerance to opioid induced respiratory depression in chronic high dose opioid users, a model based comparison with opioid naive individuals. And it reads in relevant part, quote, prolonged use of opioids such as morphine, oxycodone or fentanyl is associated with addiction. Physical dependence and tolerance. Tolerance occurs due to adaptive changes at the neuronal level and results in the need for dose escalation to maintain the desired intensity of response, pain relief in the clinical setting and a high in the street setting. Importantly, the consumption of high dose or potent opioids is potentially life-threatening as it may cause opioid-induced respiratory depression. OIRD, and ultimately death from silencing of neurons in brainstem respiratory networks. When tolerance to analgesic and euphoric opioid effects coincides with tolerance to opioid respiratory effects, tolerance may reduce the respiratory effects of opioids. However, several animal studies indicate that tolerance to the analgesic and respiratory effects are disassociated with lower and slower development of tolerance to OIRD, respiratory depression, then of other opiate effects. Close quote. So assuming that tolerance to the high of opiates develops substantially more rapidly than does tolerance to the respiratory depression effect, and that the window of safe dosing thus grows ever smaller, uh, as these articles suggest, and the risk to the addict of fatal overdose ever greater, This would run counter to the state's apparent argument that Floyd's admitted opioid addiction actually made him less likely to experience a fatal opioid overdose than would be the case for a non-addict. In fact, it would be more likely. Okay, folks, that's all I have for now. Join us later this morning for our live coverage of the court proceedings in Minnesota v. Chauvin and for our end-of-day wrap-up, commentary, and analysis, both right here at Legal Insurrection. Until then, I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense, guest commenting, and analysis for Legal Insurrection. Stay safe.